0: Isaiah chapter 40, this is the next to the last time that we will talk about what it's like to live in this world, life in a broken world or life in a hostile world. Isaiah 40, as I mentioned already, Isaiah ministered primarily in the southern kingdom, Uh, The northern kingdom, which basically was just all the 12, or sorry, all the 10 tribes of Israel except Judah and Benjamin, the northern kingdom was completely displaced. They were taken to Assyria. The southern kingdom, for another 100 or so years, 150 years, survived with Jerusalem and Judah um, and parts of Benjamin. Isaiah ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, the kings of Judah, for the last 40 years of. almost the last forty years of the existence of the southern kingdom. In the early early in the prophecy of Isaiah we read that he served under King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah as the prophet of God. The threats that they faced were very real. Assyria was already taking people from Israel, the northern kingdom, away. Babylon was a growing threat, although to a much lesser degree, no one saw Babylon coming at this time, except for the prophet Isaiah. Israel and Syria were certainly threats to Judah, uh, especially during the beginning of Isaiah's reign. But Isaiah, like all the prophets, served as God's covenant prosecutor. That means he, he was like a, a prosecuting attorney. In God's heavenly courts, only he was sent to proclaim the, the, the truth of God's word. To tell people the law of God and encourage them to repent and then tell them of the coming consequences and wrath if they did not repent. That really is the first half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 35. And it's God's use of Assyria to judge Israel. And then chapters 40 to 66, the last half of Isaiah, we we actually see God promising deliverance and the return of the exiles from Babylon. And this, again, was 150 years before Judah ever was exiled. So before the discipline was ever happening, God already promised that he would send comfort. This is how our God is. He's kind and good, even in discipline. But this doesn't just apply to the people who lived in this time. In these last 20 chapters or so of Isaiah, we also see this applying to the people of the church, the church age. Because he prophesies about the coming king, the redeemer. He talks about the suffering servant in Isaiah 40 or 53. And all through these last 26 chapters, we see a promise of a redeemer. So this isn't just describing the deliverance of the people of Israel from Babylon. This is the deliverance of God's all of God's people from sin by the coming Messiah. And all of this is beautifully woven together in the same prophetic letter. Just as the first part of the vision in chapter 6 begins with the heavenly court where we see God talking to the angels and saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. So in chapter 40, the beginning of this message of comfort, we also see, are able to see the the goings-on in God's heavenly court, an inside look at the discussions that are happening there. So this is the word of comfort. The word of comfort. In this chapter, we're going to see three declarations, by God, and the prophets. We'll see six displays of God's character and then three redirections of the people's hearts. But before we discuss, let me read this chapter. This is God's holy word, a precious and dear part of Scripture. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. But the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of this earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted and scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, and by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? and not faint. Truly the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great diversity of comfort we find in your word, and this is so direct and so clear. May your people be encouraged. May we all Get a glimpse of your glory and increase our confidence in your promises this night. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll start with three words of declaration. This is the first six or so verses, three words of declaration. This is God's heavenly court. If you look in verses 1 and 2, where the prophet Here's God say, Comfort, comfort my people. Comfort, comfort. These verbs, by the way, in the Hebrew are plural verbs. Comfort y'all. If he were southern. Comfort, comfort. This is the Lord God talking to his heavenly court, as well as all the prophets. And it's repeated for emphasis. Of course, in Hebrew, they don't have exclamation points, they don't have punctuation. If you've ever taught English, you know how important it is to know the punctuation marks. To put a question mark changes the meaning completely. To put a a semicolon instead of a colon, you you change the meaning. So in Hebrew, when you want to place an emphasis, when you want an exclamation point, you say something twice. And if you really want to emphasize it, you say it three times. Holy, holy, holy It's the Lord God Almighty. Well, here he says comfort, comfort. And the prophet Isaiah uses, or here's God using this kind of, of, of duplication of words throughout the prophecy. Later it's wake up, wake up. Later it's shalom, shalom, peace, peace. Build up, build up. But here it's Comfort 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 who my people he's talking to the people that are his in isaiah 43 1 he said i've redeemed you i have called you by name you are mine that's us as well we're the children of abraham this is also for us but specifically for the people of judah he's telling them despite the discipline that's coming you are still my people And for the first 35 chapters, he's been talking about the discipline of God. It's coming. It's coming. You need to repent. The discipline is coming. The devastation is coming. And then in chapter 40, he shifts. He shifts to this word of comfort. Even in the midst of discipline. And he says, speak tenderly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, to the church. Cry to her. This is to cry out with a loud voice. It's announcing for everyone to hear. Cry out this message of comfort. Isaiah, who had warned of the coming wrath of God for so long, is now told, speak a message of comfort. I feel this way sometimes, too, as I'm going through the Scriptures, preaching verse by verse through the Scriptures. Often there are times of of rebuke and of warning, but then sometimes I flip the page and I have a message of comfort to preach. A message of the gospel. Certainly there's gospel everywhere. But you know what I mean. This is a message of comfort. Of tender voices. And the message is that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. And she is paid double from the Lord for all of her sins. In other words... All the discipline that I'm going to give you is bounded by my own will, and you've paid it. Now, certainly they hadn't paid it yet. It was coming. He's talking about a time that was in the future when the discipline would be put on it. But still, the message would be a message of comfort. That God has put a limit on his people's afflictions and their trials. He's limited it and bound it for his own purposes. And what a comfort that is for us as well. There's no affliction that's randomized. God uses our afflictions for his purposes, and it's all bound. He's placed his hand upon you. He watches over every detail of your life. And he tells them that their iniquity is pardoned. Their warfare is ended. The time of captivity in Babylon for the the people of Judah and Israel had a particular limit controlled by God. And certainly this warfare has ended. This is a soldiering metaphor. This is, this is the soldier whose deployment time is over, and he's just ready to go home. After the people of Israel and Judah were in Babylon for so long, after 70 years for the people of Judah, it was time to go home. And those who were listening knew that it was time to go home and wanted to go back home. This is the prophecies, or the the, the book of Daniel that we see, where Daniel knew that the prophecies of Jeremiah, the 70 years, had come to a completion. And he was praying that the time of warfare was ended. He was ready to go home. This is a frustrating time for a soldier, too. You have to wait. And that also is in the the end of this prophecy. You have to wait. I remember the, the times that I've been deployed the government always makes you wait. You think, ah, oh, well, yeah, my deployment is going to be over on December 15th. I'll be home by Christmas. Not likely. It's from the December 15th to probably January 15th, and you're just twiddling your thumbs and waiting, waiting for the bureaucracy to move you, and you want to get home. The warfare has ended. You've paid your dues. It's time to go home. It's this anticipation that the prophet is saying, your, your warfare will be ended, and, and you will feel the comfort after the discipline. In verse 3, we see God's declaration in his heavenly court that the kingdom also will come. The kingdom also will come. Not just a message of comfort, but it will come with a kingdom. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. This is the voice of every prophet in ages past, including Isaiah. And it should sound very familiar because that scripture is in every gospel, which is unique. Sometimes they're in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but not in John. Sometimes in John, but not in Matthew, Mark, Luke. This is in every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And who does it refer to In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord? You probably know this is referring to John the Baptist in every gospel. The greatest of all the prophets. And what is this metaphor? Making way in the wilderness, making straight highway in the desert. What is this? Lifting up the valleys and lowering the mountains and hills. In verses 4 and 5, making the uneven ground level and the rough places a plain. What is the prophet saying? Over and over, it seems these metaphors of leveling and bringing down and lifting up, making rough level. For the Jews, they were glad to see God making things right after their exile in Babylon, and it would happen. God would make things right again and bring them home. But certainly this is also applied to us through John the Baptist. We see that God is also referring more specifically to his new covenant kingdom. Sproul in his study Bible said, At the Lord's appearance, nature submits to his will. He removes all obstacles and prepares a road by which the royal procession advances in the establishment of the kingdom. Isaiah and all the prophets through John the Baptist are declaring the kingdom of God. When the king comes, all of creation was made to prepare for their creator. And certainly we see when Christ was on the earth, all of creation submitted to their king. He walked on the water. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. And everything he wanted to do, he did it. He conquered death. The devil hates the kingdom of God. Hence, I think we see the repetition of the metaphors. The mountains made low. The valleys raised up. The rough places a plain. For the kingdom of God, it's it's difficult for those in it. And yet, verse 5, the truth is that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh together shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Whenever you see that phrase, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that means it is done. There is no question, of course, everything in God's word is done. But this is another exclamation point. This will happen. You will return from the exile in Babylon. And more than that, we will see... A redemption from sin and Satan and the kingdom of Satan and Babylon the Great. The return from the exile was actually just a shadow of the glory that God would display in the incarnation of Christ. And when Christ hung on the cross, He was hanging between heaven and earth like Jacob's ladder. The only way for us to see the glory of God. And indeed we see that the glory of the Lord was revealed in Christ, in the gospel of Christ. And certainly this is a public kingdom. All flesh shall see it together. All flesh, all the world sees the church of God today. Whether they acknowledge it or not, they all see it. Everyone knows about Jesus, whether they believe him or not. This is a public kingdom. It's a visible kingdom. And certainly when he returns, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is sure. So certainly the people of Israel who heard this would be confident of God's promises. And certainly when we hear this comfort, we should be confident of God's promises. We should encourage our feeble hands and strengthen our weak knees by a reminder of the word of God. That it's true and it's final and it will be accomplished. We should meditate on the promises of God. Final declaration we see in verses 6 through 9, the declaration from God's heavenly court. The prophet is to declare good news to the church. He's told to cry out this message. The grass withers and the flower fades. God controls life and death and everything in it. People are like grass. So that the prophet is, is reminding men and women that compared to God, you are you're nothing. Compared to His holiness and his grandeur, to his majesty, you're nothing. Our hearts need to be humbled before the Almighty God and everyone who hears the Word of God, in whose hands are our life and everything in it, we need to, to be reminded that God and His word will far outlast anything that we do. Calvin says that this is God's gospel. In a few words, this is God's gospel in just a few words. In verse 8 we see the grass withers and the flower fades. The people are grass. We are in need of a Savior, but the word of our God will stand forever we see man's misery on his own, man's humility before the Almighty God, and then man's flight to God for salvation as revealed in his word. So the prophet in verse 9 is commanded to do what all pastors do. As heralds of the king, he's commanded to proclaim the good news. And twice, O Zion, herald of good news, herald of the gospel, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Fear not. And what is he to cry? Behold your God. This is all of our desires to behold God. This is Paul's message in Second Corinthians 3 and 4. That we with, all, with unveiled face would all behold the glory of the Lord being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. The, the message is that through our lives we increasingly see God. We behold the, the Lord God through His Word and by the revelation of the Word in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. For 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Our desire is to have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When someone is an alcoholic, they'll do anything to get another drink. When someone is uh, addicted to drugs, like, we can't just think about them like, oh, those, those losers they get involved in drugs. It's an addiction. They have to have it. They crave another drink. They crave another hit. Nothing will satisfy but another drug, another drink. If you give them music, hey, let's go to a concert. It's not going to satisfy. If you give them a good meal, hey, let's go eat a really good steak. The only thing that will satisfy is drugs, another drink. And then they think they're content. Certainly we know that that is not true contentment. But the soul of man is just like this. We look everywhere for something to fulfill, something to bring contentment. And nothing in our lives as humans will ever bring any contentment. No pleasures or power. Nothing in all of the earth except Jesus Christ beholding our God. So that's the the proclamation from the heavenly court. But to back up the word and the promises that Isaiah is to proclaim, Isaiah declares the attributes of God. Why do we have confidence in God and in his promises? Because we know who he is and we trust in his attributes. And God in His attributes is not divided. It's not like this part of God is His justice, and this part is His love, and this part is His grace, and this part is His faithfulness. All of God is all of His attributes all the time. He's ever present, one hundred percent, in all of His attributes in every action. We can't divide Him up. This is God's simplicity, as the theologians would say. He's not divisible. So, when we go through these scriptures, keep that in mind. But in verse 10, what do we see? We see the justice of God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. He's saying God is not coming passively. When he comes to defend you, he's not coming as as someone who's just watching and looking. He's not just going to walk around and watch you suffer in exile. When he comes to redeem you, he's going to bring you out. And he's not only coming in love and in mercy, he's coming in might and in power. And he brings justice. He brings recompense. Uh, Jerry and I were blessed to go to a short conference before the General Assembly, and we heard a, a number of speakers, preachers. One of them was a young, uh, fiery guy, um, He was a Cuban-American. He's a PCA pastor in Miami uh, named Aldo. I can't remember his last name. Remember, Jerry? Aldo. I can't remember. But one of the things he talked about was that basically we, as a culture, are kind of being sissified. We're being feminized. And the gospel is being feminized. Why don't they like... Jesus. And if they like Jesus, why doesn't the world like the Jesus who's a prophet, a priest, and a king? Some parts of the church don't like the idea that Christ, as our mediator mediator, came as a prophet, a priest, and a king. And yet he did come as a king. And in Revelation, he will come back as a king. When he was on the earth, he reigned as a king, although he was a servant. In his earthly form, he reigned. He was exalted in his exaltation, and given the authority and the kingdom that he left. So, how does Christ execute the office of a king? He subdues us to himself. He rules and defends us. He restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies. This doesn't sound like a passive God. That's what uh, the prophet Isaiah is saying: is when God comes, He's not coming passively. He's coming with recompense before him, as we saw. And we're going to see fully when Christ returns to take us home. It's amazing to think that even while Christ was in the manger as a baby, he held everything together by the word of his power. He left his heavenly glory but he was still ruling by his power as a king. What <clears throat> well, we see in verse 11, not only his, his powerful justice, but also his love. This is another attribute that gives us hope. The context of the prophecy, as is, you remember, is, is God's discipline is coming, and he says to the, the, to the people that will be exiled in Babylon, they will bring them comfort, and he reminds them that he's a good shepherd. He uses his rod and his staff for the health of the flock. He tends his flock. He's speaking of his own people. He's speaking of us. Part of the message this morning is God's love is, is specific to his people. He not only cares for his flock as a whole, but he also cares for each one. He lifts up those into his arms and carries them close to his bosom that are with young He's mild and gentle and compassionate. And he's not going to drive his sheep harder than they can bear, Calvin said. Such is the infinite love of our God that he condescends. This warrior king, ruling and reigning king, is also our shepherd and cares about us. Besides his love, in verse 12, we see displays of his power. In verse 12, This is just beautiful. He's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. You know, the earth is 71% covered in water. And it's a big earth. We can't measure it in gallons. I guess you probably could try. 332 million miles of water. I remember someone talking about taking a boat across the Pacific. Took a long time. And he would walk out on the deck and he said, Everywhere I looked, there was water. 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 For days, for weeks, nothing but water. I remember flying over the Pacific. Usually we can fly from place to place and you you can see landmarks fairly quickly. I remember flying for hours and nothing but blue. Water. And yet God measures the waters of the Earth in this little tiny hollow of his hand. Verse 12 says, "He marks off the heavens with a span." Again, it's trying to, to show us the, the magnificence, greatness of our God. So you know, we live in a galaxy called the Milky Way." I saw Rachel look up. She's like, "Yeah, I've studied that one. Milky Way." It contains several hundred billion stars. The sun is just one of them. Think of that, several hundred billion. How big is the Milky Way? This is from NASA. Imagine that our entire solar system is the size of a quarter. So, if that's our entire solar system, the sun is a microscopic speck of dust. How far away is the nearest star to our sun? In our model, where the entire solar system is a quarter, in our model, Proxima, Sinjari, and any planets around this next star, would be another quarter, two soccer fields away. That's just the next star. That's one. Two soccer fields away. This is the typical separation of stars in our part of the galaxy And we're on the edge of the galaxy, so we can not just see into our galaxy, we can see outside of our galaxy, into the deepest of space. If you traveled from one end of our galaxy to the other, it would take 100,000 years, light years. If you're traveling at the speed of light, it would take 100,000 years. That's a big galaxy. But that's not it. The Milky Way is just one of billions and billions of galaxies. Can you fathom? None of us can. And yet, as large as the universe is, God marks the universe with the span of his hands. You realize he created all of it. This is nothing for him. You think his promises are hard? He's got it. He owns this place. He created this place. He weighs the mountains with scales. So when God talks of restoring his people after discipline, we should have no doubt that he will do it and he can do it. He will accomplish it. Nothing can stop him. No one can comprehend his power. We see it in his wisdom in verses 13 and 14. As your children grow older, you know that you need to educate them. You need to send them to school. They need to go to school and learn the three R's. And if they want to continue study, academic study, you find the best universities. We care about learning and wisdom, but it takes years of hard work to learn enough to be an expert in any field. Vocational fields or academic fields. But in verse 13, he says, "...who's measured the Spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who's taught him justice or knowledge or showed him the way of understanding?" In other words... Where did God go to school? He didn't go to school. We think we're so wise, and this is what the prophet's doing, is saying, you think you're wise and you know what's going on. You don't. Just stop. God's wisdom cannot be comprehended. He knows everything about everything, past, present, and future. He knows the end from the beginning. Nothing ever surprises him. He never has to change his mind because he knows it all. All things are as present knowledge to this infinitely wise God. His wisdom never grows bigger. It never shrinks like ours does. It can never be doubted in the slightest. We naturally reject the wisdom of God, but it should be trusted. Verses 15 to 17, we see God's sovereignty. The nations are nothing. They're a drop in the bucket and less than nothing. Nothing. These nations that God was using to discipline Israel and Judah, they're nothing before God. He uses them like tools in his hands. So the people of Israel need to have confidence that these promises would be kept. We need to have confidence that the nations exist for the glory of God. And finally, in verses 18 to 20, we see that he is the only God. There is no other. Our hearts desire other gods, but... We should desire only our God. And then he rebukes them before he brings final comfort. In verses 21 to 24, he reminds them of his providence. In verse 21, don't you know? Haven't you heard? Hasn't it been told you from the beginning? You're Jews. You are people who know the truth. We also are people of the book. We know the truth. This is a reminder for us as well. When we feel threatened to remind us, Of who our God is. He sustains everything by the word of His power. Haven't you heard? Haven't you heard who God is? He's our creator. The climax really of His his gentle rebuke is in verse 25. Whom will you compare to me? Lift up your eyes and see who created the, the heavens. He calls each star by name. Implying that he knows each of his people by name. He knows everything about us. So don't complain. Don't doubt God. He's the everlasting God. Verses 27 and 28. And then he concludes with the promises for his elect. God's deliverance will come. You people going to Babylon, God will deliver you. He'll bring you back. For us, the fulfillment of God's promises is ultimately seen in Christ. From death to life, from weak to strong, from powerful to the faint, mounting up with wings like eagles, never being weary or faint-hearted. When you're in Christ, these are spiritual realities, of course. He emboldens us to live for God. When he calls a man, he gives him the power to live on this earth, but he also bids him to come and die to his flesh. So as we go to the Lord's Supper, remember that we are not to fear but we are to be remembering God's attributes and all of His promises are true and sure. Especially we who are His, who are called by His name, should know it. We have no need to fear. We need to wait for the Lord and He will renew our strength. We'll mount up with wings as eagles. Run and not be weary and walk and not be faint.